And so we're going to look into the Word of God today, as we always do on a Sunday or on every weekend, to let the Word of God begin to speak to us uh, and teach us new things. Uh, oh yes, before I do that, uh, and this is again part of the message, I want to share this with you. Malam Pentecostal is amazing. I, I serve in LifeGen. I just want to share you something that has also happened with us. We had our LifeGen camp just last weekend. Um, and and it's, our, it's our biggest LifeGen camp uh, ever. LifeGen, by the way, is our campus students' ministry. And our campus students' ministry uh, basically primarily serves students in university, colleges, um, those doing tertiary education. Um, and and we've, had our, we've had camps. We camp camps every year. Um, some of you were also involved with us in Fire Festival last year, uh, which was powerful and, and amazing. Um, but we had this camp uh, last weekend, our biggest camp so far, 320 of us moved out of, uh, of our comfort zones and moved to a different comfort zone uh, in Malacca. Uh, and, and, and God just moved so powerfully. I, I'm still hearing testimonies of what God is doing uh, in our, what God did in, uh, in, in our campus lives. I'm just going to show you some pictures of what, is, what was happening. Um, just our time of worship before God, uh, encounters. And that's, what, that's the theme I'm going to be talking about today, encounters with God, personal, powerful encounters with God. Um, and, and very individual encounters with God. And we're going to end off with our um, every camp you see this group photo. Um, just, just what God has done for us. Um, I know it's very small. My face is even smaller there. But if you see my daughter's face, you know I'm there. All right. Um, but uh, uh, the, just what God has been doing and, and the powerful testimonies that have been coming out of, of, of this camp, of personal encounters with God. People getting words from God, healings. Um, I had the opportunity of, of oh, this, this is so awesome. I had the opportunity of just praying with somebody and letting him receive the Holy Spirit and being able to speak in tongues. Um, and, and for those of you who uh, have prayed for people to, to, to receive the Holy, baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, sometimes that's, that's really like, you know, a walk in the dark uh, because you don't know what's going to happen. You really believe that this, this person will receive the baptism because that's the promise of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but you don't know what it's going to turn out. And, and this is not my first time, but every time I pray for someone to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues, and, and then just to begin to hear that come out of his mouth, uh, so much joy, so much joy inside. And, and, and just God has been moving powerfully uh, in life, Jen. Um, and I believe... I believe God is going to move powerfully for each and every one of us today. Today. So I want to just really, as we look at this passage, really come to God with a heart of expectation. A childlike heart to say, look, this, this passage may be very familiar to you. This passage may be one of those passages where all your theology begins to frame itself. Um, all the prophecies and all the laws and, and all of that will begin to frame itself and go, wow, you know, this is a powerful passage on, 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 why Jesus, on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But more than that, and over and above that, I want us to come with a heart that says, Lord, if these guys had a powerful encounter with you that changed their life and moved them from where they are into the powerful apostles that they became, then Lord, do this with me too. May these encounters that I have with you become encounters that change my life and move me from where I am now to become the man, to become the man or woman of God that you have destined for me to be. 
We're going to look at the passage in Matthew 17, verse 1 to 13, which is the passage on the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. A very interesting passage because it almost comes as, as, a, uh, as a detour or something that, that looks like, that looks like uh, something amazing happening in the middle of all these other teachings and experiences with Jesus. But it is very, very vital, very, very much a part of what Jesus wanted to reveal to his disciples. And specifically, at least at that moment, to three people, Peter, James, and John. So turn with me to Matthew 17. Uh, we're going to go through a fair bit of scripture today. Um, not everything is up on the screen, uh, just the primary passage, Matthew 17. Uh, but it, as, as I do, I just want to encourage you to take out your Bibles, whip them out, um, or, or, you know, turn them on <laughs> if it's a... Uh, your phone, uh, but you know, put it on airplane mode, right? So all you have is the Bible, and I hope you've downloaded your Bible. Um, but anyway, turn with me to some of these passages as we look at who Jesus is at the time when he revealed himself in this passage and what he was showing to the disciples at that time. So I'm going to look at Matthew 17, verse 1 to 13, uh, and so read this along with me, yeah? And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them high up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Lord Jesus, as we look at your word, may your Holy Spirit encounter us once again. Just as we prayed, as, as we sang in worship, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit encounter us once again. We make way, we make room. Holy Spirit, move. Move in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we go into the transfiguration story, I thought we should set a bit of background. All right? um, the transfiguration story starts off um, with the phrase, uh, after six days. All right? After six days. Uh, and that's something you'll notice in Matthew uh, and Mark, but in Luke, Luke uses the word eight days. Now, I don't think there's much of a difference um, uh, in terms of the point that was being brought across. But here are three things that happened before the transfiguration. If you look at Matthew chapter 16, 
you will see three interesting conversations or interesting lessons that Jesus was teaching the disciples just before the transfiguration. First of all, it was the question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you say the Son of Man is? Or who do people say? His first question was, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Meaning, who do people say that I am? And then the, the reply to him was, a reply to Jesus was, well, some people say that you are John the Baptist, or you are like Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus specifically tells them, or asks them, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you understand the context of where Peter says this, very little, if any, has been mentioned about Jesus being the Son of God. Because Jesus often refers to himself as the Son of Man. The reason being because he then associates himself, although being God, as one like any of us, a Son of Man. But he is also the Son of God. And so when Peter declared, you are Christ, or the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God, Jesus then replies him and says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he, he gives Peter this instatement of his position and says, I tell you, Peter, you are, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the first conversation, a declaration and an affirmation of who Jesus is, not just as the Son of Man, but as the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God. Second conversation, Jesus then tells his disciples, this is what's going to happen, and then he refers back to the Son of Man. He says, this is what's going to happen to him. He says he will be uh, in Jerusalem, he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the third day, be raised. And so here's, here's the anointed one. Here's the son of the living God, the Christ. And then this Christ tells them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I will, be, uh, I will suffer. I will be rejected. I will be killed. And then on the third day, I will rise again. The very man who says, you are the Christ, then pulls him aside and says, hey, wait, hold up. He says, far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. And then Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Huge contrast. Blessed are you, and you will be Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and then get behind me, Satan. Now Jesus doesn't call Peter Satan. I think we've got to understand that sometimes when, when things like these are said, it's not literal. But what he was saying, what Jesus was saying, and, and telling the disciples, and telling Peter, is this. That what his calling was, and he was very clear with that, is that he will suffer, he will be rejected, he will be killed, but yet he will also rise again. And there is nothing we can do as good as it sounds or as wonderful or as a human being, lovingly as it is, to draw Jesus from away from what he was meant to do. And so we, if, if, if Peter did what he did, he would have been a hindrance. 
because he was not setting his eyes on the things of God, but on the things of man. Third conversation. The third conversation is one where Jesus then tells his disciples, if you want to be my follower, take up your cross and follow me. If you want to be my follower, take up your cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And then he ends with this in Matthew 16, verse 28. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So you've got three conversations. Firstly, affirming Jesus as the Son of God. Secondly, affirming what Jesus will be going through as the Son of God. And then thirdly, if you want to become my follower, take up your cross and follow me. So the transfiguration happened in the context of these very important conversations. And so these guys, within that past week after that conversation, after that last conversation, six, eight days, whatever, the, whatever that actual time frame is, within that time period, they were pr- processing these things. They're like, okay, if Jesus is the Christ, then the Christ dies. And if I were to follow Jesus, I would have to do what he says he will be doing, taking up his cross. And then Jesus takes three men, Peter, James, and John. And in the Luke account, he brings them to a mountain to pray. And on that mountain, Jesus reveals himself in a very different way than he has ever revealed himself to anyone prior to that time. He revealed himself in a transfigured body. A transfigured body. Now, a transfiguration just the word itself, just simply means that the figure transforms. All right? So uh, there, there's a transformation of who you are in terms of your image, in terms of your figure. Um, and, and, it's, and, and if you were just to look at that word itself, it's not very new to us. Well, I don't think it's very new to us. It wasn't new to me. In the, there's this concept of people transforming in figure, um, and just that we don't usually, usually use that word outside of the Bible. But here are some examples. When I grew up, I watched Ultraman. How many of you, Ultraman era? Yes. All right, now you all know how old you are. Okay, so, um, so I watched Ultraman, and, and we always laugh at Ultraman because, you know, at the end, near the end of every episode, his light starts blinking, uh, and then he does some trademark moves like this or this or whatever it is, and then the monster dies and, and disappears. But we always remember that Ultraman as a figure is transformed from a human being. And so only when things, when trouble strikes, when things go bad and this monster, the army cannot defeat this monster, blah, 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 this guy presses something or, or does something. I, I don't remember that portion, but then he becomes Ultraman. But the story behind Ultraman or the background story behind Ultraman is that these guys are aliens, all right? Beings from a different universe, a different celestial area, um, apparently a very technologically advanced civilization, uh, but they're, they're present here on Earth and they present themselves in adapting to a, a human host or, or looking like a human body. And, and when trouble strikes, Ultraman appears to save, the, the, well, to save one nation at a time. Uh, they've never really saved the world, but they saved this one nation known as Japan. Um, 
But they morph. They morph, you know, or this guy morphs into Ultraman, and then if you follow the series, there are more elsewhere. But that's one example of, 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 of morphing into something else. Um, if, when I grew up, I watched Transformers in cartoon. Transformers cartoon viewers, raise your hands. Now you all know how you are, okay. But for some reason, as a kid, I always thought Transformers were robots. I don't know if that was you. I had this impression that Transformers were robots. So, so there was nothing, you know, alien about this, you know, was robots. And then when, when the Transformers movies came out, um, and, and this was in the past decade or so, the Transformers movies came out, I realized these were life beings. Now, some of you will look at me and go, you didn't realize this? Yes, I did not realize this. But here are some people, or some, some beings, aliens, once again, um, because apparently we're not as advanced or as, as, as technologically powerful or whatever it is, people who come onto Earth and then adapt or take on the, the, the form of something that human beings can understand. Vehicles. So Ultraman took on a, hu a form of a, a human body. Uh, Transformers took on the form of vehicles, airplanes or, or, or cars uh, or even big trucks, right? Um, and, and when trouble strikes, they morph into the, the life being that they are, plus a bit of additions because of the um, vehicle that they have adopted. The last one, mighty morphing Power Rangers. Go, go, Power, okay. When trouble strikes, five regular teenagers morph into superheroes with super light powers, doing all sorts of things to, to defeat evil and, and things like that. Morphing into something else is not unfamiliar to us. Of course, most of the time it's entertainment because you don't see any one of you or even yourself more suddenly morphing into something else or you know, transfiguring into something else. But most of the time we also realize that we don't use the word transfigure. We use the word morph or metamorphosis to morph into something else, to change figure into something else. And I think there are two main reasons for that. First of all, most of you have read the Bible and you've come across this word transfigure or transfiguration, and it would almost sound so wrong to say that anything else can transfigure except Jesus. It's like mighty transfiguring power rings here. We don't usually use that word transfiguration except for Jesus Christ. And, and I think the reason for that is this, and number two is this. Transfiguration is usually used to describe a transformation of something into into a different figure that is more beautiful, more elevated, a, a, a higher form of figure in that sense. And that's what I think happened to Jesus at that time. What happened to Jesus was he transfigured into something so wonderful, so awesome. I'm not sure if anyone has ever been able to draw it or, or, or put it on film or to, you know, find some CGI or computer graphics to, to make this look like what it actually happened that day. But Jesus transformed into something that even the writers of the Gospels cannot fully explain, but was so powerful. Because if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they describe the transfiguration, they describe only two things of Jesus, his face and his clothes. Only one fellow described his face, Matthew. He says his face shone like the sun, shining like the sun. And that's perhaps the, the 
best description you can give because how many of you have ever stared at the sun? Okay, how many of you, okay, if you've stared at the sun, you can raise your hands, like, unashamedly, um, and, and I hope all of you still have your vision. Um, how many of you have stared at the sun, but raise, uh, dr- lower your hands if you stared at the sun during the haze? Raise your hands, uh, keep your hands up if you raised your, uh, sorry, lower your hands if you've stared at the sun with, a, with the assistance of some optical device, like some sort of protection, you put on sunglasses, um, you saw it through, um, through a camera. Um, if that's you, I think you have a bigger understanding of, as to what it means to stare at the face of someone who's shining like the sun. Because it's blinding. And if, 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 if you've seen the sun, you will not, because of his brightness, you will not be able to look at the features of the sun. What would it look like with fire and, and, and balls of gas and, and, and all of that? You don't see any of that. You just see light, sheer light. Would you have been able to see his eyes, his face, his nose? Would you have been able to see any features on his face if it was shining like the sun? I don't think so. It was just blinding. What's even more amazing is his clothes. Now, Jesus, presumably, when he was uh, um, not transfigured, uh, would have been wearing general clothes, like, like uh, I was going to say, like any of us, but obviously uh, very different at that time, like, like the disciples at that time, just walking around wearing clothes. But then the description in the transfiguration were clothes that were dazzling. It was just so bright. It was as white as light. Mark calls it radiant, intensely white, as, as no one on earth could bleach them. And if you realize these advertisements that tell you how powerful their laundry detergent is, when they pick up the white shirt, right, it doesn't just look white like on TV. Oh, okay, yeah, white now, right? It looks bright white, like, like there's this radiance coming out from there. You see all these light beams coming out from the shirt, right? Wow! And, 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 and there's just such an awe and an admiration on the power of the laundry detergent because now my shirt isn't just white. My shirt is intensely white. It's radiant. It's dazzling white. And that's the kind of, well, I, I think when they actually saw the transfiguration, that was not the kind. It was even more dazzling, right? This, this Jesus who would walk with them and talk with them and eat with them, whose face they can see, they can touch, they had no blindness when they saw his face, the clothes were regular clothes. Suddenly, on the Mount of Transfiguration, totally transformed, totally transfigured, totally different from the man they've always been seeing and the man they grew up with or the man they saw for the past two to two and a half years prior to Jesus' crucifixion. Totally different. And this was an encounter that was only given to three people. Not just did he transfigure, two prominent people in Israel's history showed up. Moses and Elijah. And Jesus was having a conversation with them. And Matthew doesn't describe what that conversation was, but in Luke, you would find that this description was about his departure and what will be accomplished in Jerusalem. And you can look that up. The other accounts are in Mark 9 and Luke chapter 9 as well. 
And so in Luke, they describe that this conversation was about his departure and what he will accomplish in Jerusalem. Essentially, what Jesus was already telling the disciples, the Son of Man will, be, will suffer, be rejected, killed, rise again on the third day. And so they were talking about these things. Luke gives us a very interesting account of what were the disciples doing when this whole transfiguration happened. They were supposed to be praying, but they fell asleep. And so this is not the first time you've probably heard this. Uh, the second time it happened was in Gethsemane. Um, but they were asleep, and then when they woke up, they suddenly realized the brightness and then the light and everything that was going on. The transfiguration was going on. And then the Matthew account, therefore, makes this whole transfiguration look like it's a very short situation, right? <laughs> conversation, conversation, conversation. Peter goes, let me build three tents. Cloud comes up, voice, and then that's the end. But it could have taken a pretty long time because you really don't know how long they slept or how long... Peter took to come to that conversation and offer to build three tents for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. But the point was this. These three disciples had an encounter like never before. These three disciples had a vision of Jesus in a very different form, but a very true form of who Jesus really is. He was not just the Son of Man. He was indeed the Son of of God. Now, here's the thing I want us to take into account. Jesus is no regular human being. Or let me put it this way. Jesus is not just a regular human being. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I imagine, when, Jesus, when, when the word Jesus comes up in my mind and I imagine it to be, I imagine Jesus as a man who walked on the earth, had some superpowers, had something really uh, powerful and, and, and amazing and, and countercultural. But Jesus is way more than that. And we've got to keep our minds focused on the fact that Jesus is so much more than just a man who showed up on earth. Not just a man who had some powers or, or some miracles and, and who loved people and was gentle, but Jesus was king. He was a man who revealed himself with such glory. You know that John, seeing all of this happen, when he was writing the Gospel of John, started off John chapter 1 by saying that Jesus was light. How, how better way to describe God as light? Because words cannot describe what he saw, except to say that he was light. Light in the darkness. That life was the light for men. And so that description stuck with him. That encounter with God stuck with him unbleachable white. When he wrote Revelation, just look at Revelation and just see the kind of description of the radiance of Christ. The radiance you cannot fix your eyes on. It's the radiance like the sun. You, you turn away, you fall on your face and you go, this is so, so powerful. So, so awesome. But I want to go to a couple of things that the transfiguration did for these three men. Because they were not supposed to tell this story. At this point when you're reading it, this is after everything has happened already. Jesus rose again from the dead and, and now they're writing these stories out and sharing these stories out. And Peter, James, and John are explaining what had happened on the trans during, at the time of the transfiguration. 
Notice a couple of things. First of all, the conversations are about his coming sacrifice and how his followers are to live. And then these three disciples get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. If anyone was to become my disciple or my follower, he would take up his cross and follow me. Now, that's a very understandable phrase if you're a disciple of somebody. You basically follow this person and you do whatever this person says, even if it means losing or giving up things that you already have. But when you see the Son of God in full glory, you know you're not just following a man. You're following someone who is worthy of everything you've got, who is worthy and way more worthy than anything we have or we hold in our lives. That taking up our cross is nothing compared to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see this throughout the rest of the New Testament. Even people who did not see that radiance of God in the transfiguration would say, I give up everything for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because this was a person whom we or whom these people were ready to sacrifice for. Jesus was also the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. You know, Moses and Elijah stood next to Jesus Christ, not because they won the lottery. Like, I'm the best prophet, woo, okay, no. But they both signify two very important things that the Jews held on to. Moses, the law, and Israel, the, sorry, Elijah, the saying of the prophets, predicting the coming of the Messiah. So when we say that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, when you look at that image as a Jew, you look at the image and you go, yes, this brilliant man, this dazzlingly white man, this intensely radiant son of God is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. But Moses and Elijah have also very interesting characteristics that they have in common. We know Elijah did not physically die. Scripture tells us that the chariot of fire took him away, uh, and, and this is what Elijah saw. But if you look at the story of Moses as well, you'll find that Moses went up on the mountain, and then the Bible does say that he died, but it is the Lord who buried him, and his grave has not been found. Meaning to say, evidentially, we have no hard fact to show. I have seen Moses' bones, I have seen Moses' flesh, I heard him breathe his last, nothing like that. In fact, people believe that Moses was also taken up. But that's not the point. These two men, whose, whose lives were powerful as they were on earth, and whose lives became such an honor to God, spoke with Jesus Christ about how his life would turn out. Then notice what Peter says to Jesus. And I'm going to talk about, for the rest of this message, how do we respond when we encounter Jesus? Peter says, Lord, it is good that we are here. And, I, and, and by we, I mean himself and his two friends, James and John. If you wish... I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I'm not, sure, I'm not entirely sure why Peter said what he did. And we know him to be someone, sometimes a person who's a bit off the cuff, um, saying things that uh, without thinking twice, or the kind of, that kind of person. But of all things, why build tents? 
And here's why I think he said that. I said earlier that God, despite whatever Israel did, said that he would dwell with them. And as much as he wants to dwell with us today, that was his promise to Israel. And when he promised that to Israel, the understanding was always that he would dwell in a temple or the tabernacle, that he would, there would be a place that Israel would recognize as a place for his dwelling. And that's why I believe Peter said, Lord, let me build tents so that you can dwell. We know from Isaiah that God says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where are you going to build your temple? But in their minds at that time, it was always something physical. What Isaiah says, though, applies to us. Heaven is God's throne. The earth is his footstool. Where is his temple? There is never a physical place so great, so awesome, that will ever be able to host our God. But just like Peter, perhaps he got one thing right. He wanted to host Jesus Christ. He wanted to say, Lord, if you are going to be here, I'm going to build a place for you to dwell. For us, when we encounter Jesus, where do we want him to dwell? In this sanctuary? In this hall? In our house? In our car? Or best of all, in our hearts? Here, friends, is what happened to Peter, James, and John. An encounter, a very personal, a very powerful, a very transformational encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter's first thought, I want to host him. And then the voice from that bright cloud coming over them and saying, this is my son with whom, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Not the first time, if you've been following us in the Matthew series, not the first time that God the Father says this, but interesting to note is he adds three words, listen to him. This time when God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, he's not affirming Jesus' identity like he did at baptism. What he was also saying was to the disciples, this is the man I have sent, listen to him. Listen to him. The disciples know that the Jesus they've been with was not just a teacher. He was the glorious, glorious Son of God. And the encounter ends with their faces on the floor. They know that this is Jesus, the Son of God, because after that encounter, they ask Jesus, but isn't Elijah supposed to come? Any Jew would know this because by the time the Old Testament ends, by the time the, the scripture that they had ended, Malachi 4 says, I will send the prophet Elijah on that, uh, on that amazing day of the Lord. And so they look at Malachi and they go, wait, where's Elijah? Isn't Elijah supposed to come? Meaning to say, first of all, that this is Jesus, the anointed one, the one who has come. So where's the forerunner? Where's Elijah? 
Malachi 4, verse 5 to 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and hearts of, fathers, and hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So they were expecting this Elijah to come. And then Jesus says, that Elijah was John the Baptist, the forerunner for me, the forerunner for Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist came, John the Baptist spoke, and John the Baptist moved in the authority and the power of Elijah, in the spirit of Elijah, to become the person who prepared the way for Jesus Christ. And yet, people rejected him. But all this goes to show that the person they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration wasn't just a prophet, wasn't just a teacher. He was God, King, Lord, radiant, dazzlingly white, and worthy of worship. A major theme of my life in the past months has been this question, what does a personal encounter with God look like? And what do personal encounters with God do for us? How are, our, how are our lives transformed by personal encounters with Jesus? Because the Bible is full of stories of people who have encountered God in very many different ways. The transfiguration is one of them. But sometimes, in the middle of the night, a man named Nicodemus sits with Jesus and talks with him and, and, and gets mind-blown by the things that Jesus says. And his life was also transformed. Different, different ones of us have individual, personal encounters with Jesus Christ. What are they for? Three things. And with this, I will close. First of all, personal encounters are a call to honor. Personal encounters are a call for us to see who Jesus is and honor Him. That's the best thing that came through Peter's mind. Maybe not the best physical expression of what he wanted to do. But if Jesus was here, I need to host him. If this God is now dwelling in my midst, I need to host him. I need to honor him. I need to respect and show him what, is, what he's worthy of. I want to honor him. Very many of us have personal encounters with Jesus. And those personal encounters, if it was, if, if it was like me, would have brought me to my knees, would have caused me to close my eyes and, and just not be distracted by anything else except to worship God and to say, God, you're so good. Personal encounters when people say words of prophecy or words of knowledge that speak to me and I know God is here in my midst right now. I don't do anything else except to honor my Lord Jesus Christ because nothing is worth taking that away. Nothing is worth distracting me from being in my encounter with Jesus. I remember at LifeGen Camp, and this is my own testimony, this is my own story of my own encounter with Jesus. Some of you know, and some of you don't yet, but I, I, I work as a lawyer. And it can always be, or it can often be mentally draining because you have questions that you need to get answers to tactics or strategies or whatever it is. 
And, and I was at camp, and I was in the presence of God. I was on my knees. I was like, God, I want you, Lord, and I, I want this personal encounter with you, and I'm, and I'm longing for you, and we're, we're worshiping God, and we're singing songs that really talk about our desire to have an encounter with God. And then my mind starts racing with answers to questions I have at work. And, and oftentimes when this happens, I immediately go, God, thank you for these answers. You're so awesome. It really is great to be in the presence of God because God gives answers to all the things that you need in life, blah, blah, blah. But at that moment, at that moment, I felt this was not what I was asking for. I was not asking for answers. I was asking for the presence of God. I was asking for an encounter with God. And I felt at that point in my life, in my, in my season or, or that moment in, in, in worship, that this encounter with God was, had not been fully realized. That, that my desire for the presence of God had not been fully satisfied. That, I, that these answers were more a distraction for me towards the presence of God. And so I say, God, not the answers. Not the answers. I want you. I want you. I want to have that encounter with you, God. Not the answers, God. Not the answers, but you. Not the gifts that come from your hand, but you, Lord. Not the words of, 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 of prophecy, but more importantly, I want you, Lord Jesus. I want that encounter, that presence, that, that, that time in your presence of just experiencing you, experiencing your embrace, your presence with me, God. And I know what that feels like. Because the other things that come with an encounter with God is that it is a call for service, just as Jesus says, listen to him. Obey what he says. These are the things you are to follow. That is actually a... a, a Fulfillment of a prophecy in Deuteronomy when, when, the, when, when there's a prophecy of Jesus coming as a prophet like Moses, to him you shall listen. But most importantly, as I experienced that day and from the day that I first came to know Jesus, it is a call to intimacy. A call to intimacy. I became a believer when I was 13 years old. I know I grew up in a missionary family, um, and so I learned about Jesus Christ. But my own encounter, my personal encounter with Jesus was when I was 13 years old. When I was 13 years old, I was in a Christian fellowship meeting. And I was going to invite the worship team. They can come up now. I was, invite, I was in the, worship, uh, the Christian fellowship meeting. And, and because I've been a Christian for so many, well, I, I, I have been in church. I've been in a Christian family for so many years. I knew, I knew the drill, right? Worship, message, blah, blah, blah. Uh, prayer, altar call, and then Christian fellowship meeting is over. But at that moment, I, I don't even remember what my teacher said, the staff advisor who was sharing that day. But I got up to respond. And as she prayed for me, and I don't remember what she said, but I, and the word we use here, and you've seen this before, I was slain. Right? So I fell back, and I was on the floor, lying on the floor there, just... Uh, and this is not my first time experiencing it, so I, I kind of knew the drill, but I was on the floor. And at that moment, an experience I've never had before just came over me. It was, it was almost as if just waves 
And if you've been in the ocean, you know this, right? When you get hit by a wave, right? You get hit by a wave. So waves, waves, waves of, of, of emotion. The only word I could describe for that is a wave of love just poured out over me, right? Just pour and, and just over. And so it was just coming out like over me, over me, once, over and over again. Just waves of love. Because it was a wave of love. Because it was a wave of love, I, I just began to tear. If it was an ocean hit me, I'd be like, swim away, right? Stay underwater. But it was a wave of love, and I just began to tear. And I was like, God, what's happening? Because this is the first time I've experienced it. Like the guys who saw Jesus at Transfiguration, that was the first time. But this is the first time my own encounter with Jesus. And it was this wave of love just flowing and just crashing over me. I know what it means when people sing the song, um, He is jealous for me, loves like a hurricane. And I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his grace and mercy. And I was like that wave of love just hitting me over and over again. And I was like, God, what are you saying? Why, why is this happening to me? And then all I heard in my mind, in my heart, and I'm very convinced of what Jesus told me that day was this, son, I love you. I love you. I know, the, the, I know what Jesus did. I know he died on the cross. I know he sacrificed himself. I know he came from glory to, to, to mankind to take away my sin. All these I knew. But at that moment on the floor, that wave of love just crashing over me and just God saying, Son, I love you. I love you. I love you. That day, I had no other word to say except, Jesus, I will follow you. Jesus, I will follow you. And I remember, I remember that moment so clearly because from that day on, and that's the day I, I recognize as my milestone, my landmark in my journey as, as a believer, when I said, Lord Jesus, because of your love for me, because I've experienced you and encountered you so powerfully, I want to say I follow you. It's not always been very easy Taking up the cross has not been easy. Understanding what it means to give up, to receive something from Jesus, or to, re- to, to follow Jesus has not been easy. But I go back to that moment when I was 13 years old, on the floor, just experiencing God with so much grace, so much love, and go, God, there is nothing else I'd rather have than you. There is no one else I'd rather follow than you, Lord Jesus. As I thought about how we want to just close this, I, I feel very strongly that because the three disciples encountered Jesus in the transfigured way and saw a part of Jesus that was revealed to them that they've never seen before, they fell on their knees Peter said, I want to host you. Most importantly, when they were there, their lives were totally transformed. John is a picture of a person who developed such close intimacy with Jesus. And I think part of that is because of what he saw in the transfiguration. He is known as the friend. He is known as the person who is so close to him. So today, even as we close this service, 
I want to invite all of us to come to a place of worship before God. Some of us have encounters that may have been more dramatic than mine. And that's great. And that's great. I rejoice with you. But encounters with God isn't just a one-off. It's all the time. It's God saying, sorry, it's us saying, God, I want to have another encounter with you. I want to have another encounter that will transform my life into becoming the person that you call me to be. And so I want to invite you, all of us here, to worship God. To worship God and to lift up His name, to honour Him. And worship God knowing that you're coming into the presence of God, not this sanctuary. You're coming into a place of worship before God and God is exalted in His worship. God is exalted and He dwells in the praises of His people. And when you worship God, I expect and I hope and I believe that God will encounter you today. Can we just rise? Can we just rise and look to God? Even as I invite the worship team to just lead us in, in a song, Worthy. I want us to just close our eyes, just worship along with us, just lift our hands to Jesus and go, Worthy are you, Lord. Worthy are you, Lord. And I believe that as God listens and, 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 and is worshipped, that His presence will be so strongly felt here. His presence becomes powerful and just an, an, an encounter that you will have with the presence of God. Hallelujah. was my cross you bore, so I could live in the freedom you died for. And now my life is yours, and I will sing of your goodness forevermore. Worthy is your name. Worthy is your name. Jesus, you deserve the praise. Worthy is your name. Worthy is your name. Jesus, you deserve the praise. Worthy is your name. Now my shame is gone. Yes, Lord. I stand amazed in your love undeniable. Grace goes on and on, and I will sing of your goodness forevermore. Worthy is your name. Praise, worthy is 
is your name. Worthy is your name, Jesus. You deserve the praise. Worthy is your name. Be exalted now in the heavens yes, as your glory fills this place. You alone deserve our praise. Your name above all names. Be exalted now in the heavens as your glory fills this place. You alone deserve our praise. Your name above all names. Be exalted now in the heavens as your glory fills this place. You alone deserve our praise. Lord, yes, Lord, name above all the exalted, be exalted. You alone deserve our praise. Your name above all the exalted, as the glory fills this place. You alone deserve our praise. Your name above all the exalted, Jesus. You deserve the praise. Worthy is your name. Worthy is your name. Jesus, you deserve the praise. Worthy is your name. Worthy is your name. You know, be wondering is it possible to encounter God? Can I be the Peter, James, and John. You know, I had my experience that I wanted to draw close to God and to encounter Him. And I was crying to the Lord for this encounter experience. And I remember the words that the Lord has given me was in Romans chapter 8, verse 15 that says, he has given us not a spirit of slaves that put us into confusion, fear, or directionless, but has given us the spirit of adoption of a sonship that we can draw. That as a son, he has given us, us to reign with him and to share his inheritance. All of us can have this encounter with Him. And I came to know of this verse, I just worshipped Him and cried out, Abba, Father. And when I did that, the presence of God just filled me and affirmed me. I am your Father. As much as you desire to draw and encounter me, the Father desired and always prepared a waiting to let His glory to just be found by you. It is not just you, you wanted it. God desired you to have it. You may have, He says, I have encountered before, but I miss it. But come back. Come back. How do we encounter God? 
You know, I have two early years, my son was teenage. And my desire is that they will experience God themselves and not just leading on me to know their God. I prayed with them. And they always ask me, I, you know, God is so far away that you are, your faith is so far away, we cannot catch up. And you know, both of my sons encounter God. It doesn't come that easy that you think of. But all they did was the desire. All they did was they wake up early in the morning, five o'clock, six o'clock, and they seek the Lord. And then one day they came and tell me, Dad, I encountered Jesus. I encountered God because I longed for Him. And when I sought Him, and I gave time early in the morning, wake up, and I found God. He spoke to me, and He is real God. He is real. The God that you believe, I right now understand. And of course, I've encountered Him. I believe when you have that desire, this experience of Peter, James, and John, my experience, both my boys' experience, you can have it. Mary, Stephanie, Susan, Stephen, Timothy, Alex, you can experience this encounter with God. Is this your desire? You know, my desire is to continue to have this encounter with God daily. Is this your desire? I believe God wants you to encounter Him when you take up the time and say, Lord, I want to. If that's your desire, just raise your hand to the Lord. Just raise your hand to the Lord and say, God, it is not just the Word of God, but Lord, I desired it. I want it. Hallelujah. Just speak to the Lord just for a moment before I pray. Just tell the Lord your heart desire and let the God, the God that's present here just affirm you that you are a son and a daughter of God. It is a desire, His desire as much as you desire of Him. Hallelujah. We thank you for the powerful presence of you, of you, Lord, our Father. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that's at work right now. Your word says, draw to me and I will draw to you. Lord, you seize these hands. Desire, Lord, a fresh encounter with you. Desire, Lord, to know you as Peter, James and John did. Lord, I pray, grant the desires of the heart. As the Lord, they put the time to just spend time to just love you, worship you, reading of your word. This will, Lord, come for the new encounter that never be the same again. And I pray, Lord, this encounter, God, will push us to a new level of faith, understanding who you are 
and who we are in you, God. I bless everyone here, Lord, that they will receive for God a new, fresh revelation daily as they, as they encounter you daily. In Jesus' name, I will ask uh, Brother Wyan to make his last comment and also to give us a benediction. Lord, I want to speak, Father, that you will reveal and encounter each one of us in our times, in our prayer altars, in our times with you. And, and Lord, I pray that you will raise a desire, a hunger, Father God, for your presence, a hunger, Father God, for an experience with you, a hunger, Father God, to, to know that you are with us and, and that we, we long for you and, and that you are revealing and manifesting yourself in such powerful ways to us. And Lord, I pray that these encounters will transform us, that these encounters will be so real, but that we will not throw them aside, but hold on to them, and that it will help us understand more and more of who you are. And Lord, that our lives will be transformed into so much, much more just like you. So God, I pray your blessing on each one of us here. I pray your presence with, with us. I pray, Father God, that your face will continue to shine on us. I pray that the love of the Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each one of us until we meet again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.